Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about a lady named Artemisia and her involvement with the creation of, of something you've definitely heard of, something, something you, you, you will be aware of, I'm, I'm sure, one of, the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Mausoleum at Halicarnassus. Uh, if you haven't heard of the Mausoleum, you've definitely heard of some of the other, other wonders on the list. Of course, the Colossus of Rhodes, uh, the Pyramids, so the only one that's still standing, of course, the Great Pyramid at Giza, and uh, the potentially made-up Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Uh, the seven wonders are actually pretty interesting. I, and I, after writing this episode, I'm, I, I'm keen to maybe do some more episodes on other seven wonders. We'll see how we go there. But we're going to talk this week about the mausoleum and Halicarnassus. Uh, and, of course, you know, even, you know, even if you have heard of this, I bet you don't know why it was built or just how wild the story behind it being built actually is. And I guarantee you this, I guarantee you this, you better firmly secure your socks to your feet right now because there is going to be an incredible fact that's going to come up later up in the episode and it's going to knock them off. It is going to knock your socks off. So you better secure them, my friends. As I mentioned, the mausoleum and its existence, it's got a lot to do with uh, with this woman named Artemisia, Artemisia II of of, uh, of Caria, to Caria. I don't know how to pronounce it. I didn't even think about that. C-A-R-I-A, Caria? Caria. I'm just going to go with Caria. Uh, that was her, that was the, the, her queendom. Uh, and uh, it also had a lot to do with her brother, who was also her husband, her her brother husband. Yeah, we're getting we're getting all sorts of scrouty around this week. We haven't really touched upon some you know good old fashioned incest on half assed history before. We're going to change that this week because uh, this uh, this famous mausoleum more or less owes its existence to Artemisia, who who quite apart from being a you know a grieving widow, she was also a very skilled naval strategist, skilled military strategist, uh, and a commander, and 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 uh, a very talented botanist as well of all things. And she ruled Caria in her own right after the death of her husband or her brother, her husband, brother, whatever you want to say. And there are a couple of ridiculous stories about this woman. So today we're going to get across them all. We're going to figure out exactly what, what you know, what, what separate the truth from the fiction, talk about what was going on with her, in addition to, of course, talking a little bit about the, the mausoleum at, at Halicarnassus and its history. And, and, you know, again, maybe a little more Seven Wonders history if you sit nicely and, uh, and behave yourself here. So let's get to it. Let's kick things off with the story of Artemisia and the mausoleum at Halicarnassus. Here we bloody go, mate. We're going all the way back to uh, 377 BCE today, uh, so be sure to remember that uh, throughout this episode we're counting down the year, uh, counting down the years as time passes, not up as today. We do in obviously the Common Era, where 2019 is followed by 2020. Back in before the Common Era, it was 377, 376, 375, and so on and so forth. Um, I've actually had a couple of questions via email about BCE and CE and what they mean and, and why I use them, and it's, it's pretty straightforward. They're just straight up replacements for BC and AD respectively, so the current year, 2019, it's both AD 2019 and 29, uh, 2019 uh, CE. They're just they're completely equivalent in every way. But obviously, using CE is preferable to using AD. It, it, first of all, it's a culturally neutral way to express a calendar era. And, uh, you know, the majority of the world aren't Christians, in, including, you know, yours bloody truly right here. So I think that, you know, BCE and CE are just much, much better options than BC and AD when you're talking about, you know, we're talking about history on a global, on a world scale, especially when we're talking about people from all around the world, you know, from all, all different cultures and perspectives and, 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 and geographical areas and, and history, whatever else. You know, there's a, there's a broad spectrum of history, and I think it's much better to use CE and uh, 
and uh, and BCE. And look, the best part about it is you're never going to mix them up. You're never going to mix them up, get confused because BCE is so close to BC. So it's a very easy sort of thing to transition to. Also, for a while there, I will mention this, for a while there, we almost went with instead of common era, we almost went with vulgar era. So, you know, don't complain about where we ended up because we could be living in the vulgar era. Bloody Johann Kepler uh, in, uh, in 1615, he wrote about the vulgar era instead of, you know, AD all the way back then. And that nearly stuck. So point is, you should be using BCE and CE, much better way of doing things for many reasons. Anyway, back in 377 BCE, we've got this small kingdom, small kingdom of Korea, which is, I still cannot figure out how to pronounce that, Korea, which is, it's part of the Achaemenid Empire or the first Persian Empire. You might also know it by that name. Now, Korea is on the western coast of modern-day Turkey, right down the bottom left corner of Asia Minor there. And uh, in 377 or so, the ruler of this little kingdom, this bloke, uh, this bloke named Hecatomnus of Milas, he goes ahead and carks it. He's dead, right? He's had five kids. He's had uh, Mausolus, Artemisia, Idrius, Ada, and Pixadarus, right? Now, the last three don't really come into the story all that much, but I did want to mention that Ada, his second daughter, went on to become the adoptive mother of Alexander the Great many years later. So there is that. That's you know She made a bit of a name for herself there. But his, it's his eldest son and his, uh, his eldest daughter, Mausolus and Artemisia, that we're going we're to focus on today because Mausolus takes over as king in 377, no worries at all. And his queen, of course, is none other than Artemisia, his sister. He went right ahead and married his sister. Yep. I mean, look, you know, we say different times and all that, but I mean, how different were they really? How di- I mean, come on. It's still bloody incest. No matter how many years later it happens, it's still bloody incest, even if it's over, over bloody two millennia ago. And it wasn't just them either. I will point this out. It wasn't just those two. Idrius and Ada also got married. Another pair of siblings from this bloke, uh, from, you know, the, the previous King Hecatomnus, they also got married as well, which means... Poor old bloody Pixadarus, he's out on his own. He's having to bloody download ancient era Tinder just on you know onto a bloody stone tablet or something. It's a nightmare for him. Couldn't you know? He couldn't have just had one more bloody kid, Hecatomnus, old mate. What are you doing, bloody leaving your fifth there with no one to go with? What's going on there anyway? That's the way that this particular cookie crumbles. And look, in fairness to the happy couple, uh, Mausolus and, and Artemisia, they were by all accounts well, they were just that. They were a very happy couple indeed. Ultimately, they were together for 24 years in wedded bliss, it seemed, uh, as, as Mausolus spent most of the time going around invading this area or capturing this island or doing whatever and bringing, you know, wealth and prosperity to his little kingdom. Um, Hecatomnus had been an ambitious old bugger himself. He'd expanded the territory of the kingdom of Caria and uh, and Mausolus, for the, you know, for the most part, is doing the same. He's invading and capturing spots in Asia Minor and the Greek islands like there's no tomorrow. And uh, so, you know, uh, Mausolus, after taking over as king, he largely follows in the footsteps of his old man, racking up more and more territory for his little kingdom. But at some point, right, at some point in his career, Mausolus decides, he sits down and says, listen, I'm going to build myself a great big fancy capital city. I'm going to, I'm going to, I need to find, I obviously want to find somewhere that's going to be easy to defend, but I'm going to make it into this, this, you know, again, this, this wonder of the world. I'm going to make this fantastic, great big, huge, beautiful city. And it's going to be fantastic. Now he ultimately settles, obviously you're all, you can all guess where he settles on Halicarnassus. Halicarnassus is in a good position strategically. And it also offered him the opportunity to build it up into this rich, sumptuous, luxurious town that was going to show off the, uh, the wealth and the prosperity of this little kingdom here. So 
After making this decision, both Mausolus and Art uh, Artemisia, they make it rain on Halicarnassus, this couple. They spend an absolute fortune on doing up their new capital, the two of them. They bring in all the best builders, the masons, sculptors, artisans, craftsmen from all around the surrounding area to make Halicarnassus into a breathtakingly beautiful city. Marble temples, huge statues, grand streets, impressive buildings, the whole shebang. They're not cutting any corners at all. They are they are really letting loose. They're letting the old purse strings fly like, like there's no tomorrow. So by all accounts, as a result of this royal investment, as a result of you know money just being dumped into this uh, this town, Halicarnassus grew into a very culturally rich city as well as a, you know, traditionally money-rich city as well, I suppose. And people came from far and wide to visit. There were visiting, you know, famous philosophers, there'd be dignitaries, all sorts that would, would travel all the way to Halicarnassus to see the city for themselves and pay their respects to the royal couple to Mausolus and Artemisia. And while settled in Halicarnassus, you know, while amongst these, again, this hugely, uh, hugely rich and, uh, and luxurious city, Artemisia, she became very involved in botany and specifically in, in uh, medicinal botany. She, she studied the restorative properties of a plant that was then known as Parthenus. It's now called Artemisia, thanks to a lot of the research that she did on it, although you might also know it as wormwood or mugwort, right? She did a lot of work actually figuring out what this thing could do. She researched specifically, she researched its use as a treatment of the symptoms of menstruation, particularly pain relief. And even today, this plant is still, uh, it still sees use in modern medicine. There's an anti-malarial drug known as artemisinin, uh, obviously, which you know, which bears her name as well. So she was, uh, you know, she was making a modest but but still significant contribution to the course of the course of you know the history of medicine, history of science. There, anyway. As the years go on, right, years go on, Mausolus, he starts to think about the kind of tomb that he wants to build for himself, and he actually may have even made up some plans himself about how he wanted to look and all, you know, all that sort of thing, preliminary plans about its location, its foundation, its size, whatever else. But this means that when he goes ahead and dies in uh, in 353, Artemisia, who, who she's absolutely devos, by the way, she's absolutely devastated the loss of her husband here, you know, might expect, she gets on with the business uh, of building this tomb for her late, uh, her late brother husband here. And she's not mucking about with it either. I can tell you this. She sends off messengers throughout the surrounding kingdoms, throughout the surrounding area, to find the most gifted and talented artists in the world. She, you know, she's sending messages off into Greece and off into you know, wherever else, looking for the most talented people on the face of the planet. Because look, she's got a husband to bury, and she's got money to burn, and she's determined to make this tomb truly monumental and truly spectacular. So she enlists some of the biggest names in sculpture at the time. I mean, you're not going to believe who she managed to get here. She got people like. Leocaris, like Bryaxis and Timotheus, right? I mean, you're, I mean, can you believe this? Can you believe some of the names she snagged? I don't know. You, what? You haven't, you haven't heard, you haven't heard of these, these? Oh, well, okay. Well, I'll give you the, I'll give you the name of someone you definitely will have heard of. She also the biggest name she managed to snag here, and you're not going to believe this one. Her biggest get was a bloke named Scopus. Nope. Still okay. Still haven't heard of Scopus. All right. Well, Scopus would go on to be involved with the uh, in the rebuilding project of the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus in the coming years, uh, which you may also know was another one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So this bloke ended up with a very very impressive uh, CV indeed. One of the most famous sculptors of that era, Scopus. There. Quick aside about the Temple of Artemis. By the way, I did a bit of reading about this. This, this is one of the reasons I want to explore some of the other seven wonders. I think in the weeks to come here, the Temple of Artemis. At this point, while the you know just before the mausoleum was uh, was built, uh, it was a smoking ruin. In 356, three years earlier, it had been destroyed by an arsonist. Now, this arsonist had succeeded in burning down the temple by setting fire to the roof beams, and it was a very obviously very deliberate act of arson there. But do you know why he did it? 
He did it because he wanted to be famous. He was seeking fame. He wanted to, that was, that was the only reason he did it. He wanted his name to be known far and wide, right? And he was caught after having set fire to the temple and he was punished. And he was punished by not, not being only sentenced, not only being sentenced to death here. I mean, that's, you know, more or less one of the worst things you can do to someone you would argue. But actually, the Ephesians here, they went one step further because they didn't only kill him. They also prohibited anyone from ever saying his name ever again. They tried to erase him from history to make sure that he would never get his, uh, his wish of being known, of being famous. They're like that. But the joke's on them because we know that his name was Herostratus. Oops, looks like he got his fame after all. There was a, there was a historian who ignored the ban on, on uh, repeating his name and actually wrote down this bloke. Uh, this bloke, the historian's name was Theopompus, and he wrote down the name of, the, of this, this fellow Herostratus, and so we know his name today. Anyway, even with this tomb being built, Artemisia, you know, she's beside herself with grief. The poor bugger, she's having a bloody terrible time. Her husband's just died and her brother's just died at the same time. Bloody, bloody awful thing to have to go through for anyone there. And the story goes that she was so overtaken with anguish and sorrow after the uh, after the death of Mausolus uh, that after that when Mausolus was was, uh, was cremated she used to mix bits of his ashes into her drinks i mean look i know you're supposed to respect the grieving process and you know let people feel their feelings or whatever but mate that is just weird that is just that is just a very strange thing to be doing i was i don't you know this is i don't this doesn't i don't want to turn this into a hugely judgmental podcast but that is just bloody weird artemisia oh, mate what are you doing there anyway even so, after the death of her husband, uh, she's crowned as queen in her own right. She's crowned as Artemisia II of Caria. There had actually been a, a previous queen, Artemisia of Caria, already a couple of hundred years ago. That Artemisia fought with uh, with Xerxes of Persia and had quite the career herself. We might come back to her at some stage in a future episode. But our mate uh, Artemisia II, she now has to govern Caria. Uh, you know, in her own right as, as the queen, which immediately proves to be a little bit trickier than she'd hoped. Now, obviously, you know, her husband and, and her, uh, her her dad before him had, had gone around conquering bits of uh, bits of land, bits of territory, other, you know, cities and states and whatever else all over the place. And one of the places that, the, that was conquered previously was Rhodes. Her grieving was very rudely interrupted by the people on the, on the island of Rhodes who see the death as, of Mausolus as an opportunity to rebel against the Carrion Queen. Mausolus had conquered Rhodes and he'd forced it to become part of Carrier, and so the Rhodians see his death as an opportunity to regain their independence as a republic. They rise up against Artemisia and against her queendom of Carrier there. They reject the legitimacy uh, of her as, as a female monarch and they declare war. Now, our mate Artemisia, as devastated as she might have been about, you know, old mate Mausolus dying, she wasn't just about to roll over and let her queendom fall to bits. No, thank you. She gets her advisor together and she formulates a plan for this war with Rhodes as the Rhodians, that you know, they're gathering, they're about to launch their fleet towards Carrier, and she comes up with a plan. She reckons, you know what, we're going to take these blokes out in one fell swoop. And they'll go, one fell swoop? That's a, oh, it's a remarkably original little turn of phrase there, Your Majesty. Is that, is that you just come up with that yourself? Did she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, oh, look, Artem- that's, an, that's an Artemisian original. I'll tell you that one. Just that one came straight off the dome. Probably won't catch on for another what? You know, 1800 years, but no, no, just just thought of that one myself. So, yeah, enjoy that one, boys. That's all yours. Anyway, so after they've made these plans, I mean, very, very cunning plan it was as well. Check this one out. Check out what happens here because the uh, the Rhodians, they fall right into the little, the little trap here that Artemisia springs for them. So 
the Rhodians. They sail to Halicarnassus to uh, to attack Caria and to try to seize the capital city here. And they are pleasantly uh, they're pleasantly surprised to find that the harbour at Halicarnassus is completely unguarded. All of Caria's warships are nowhere to be seen. Excellent. So this is just an absolute free pass here. They can just roll into the harbour, no worries at all. They dock in this empty port and they are thrilled to find that the people of Halicarnassus, you know, obviously they've got no navy, they've got nothing to defend themselves with, they surrender immediately. They go, oh, yep, you got us. You know what? You caught us on, uh, we're all, it's all our day off and you've just managed to walk into the city, waltz in here with uh, completely unopposed and the blokes from uh, Rhodes, they're patting themselves on. So, they're getting sore arms from how much pat- back patting is going on amongst themselves. They're going, geez, this is just a walk. Why do we do this early? This is the easiest thing in the world. We're just walking in here, take control of the city, easy as anything. So the Rhodians, after this surrender has been offered to them by Halicarnassus, they march all the way to Artemisia's court in the middle of the city and they claim victory. All too easy, they reckon. Great job, us. Well done. Handshakes all round. Promotions. Don't even worry about it. Let's pop out the champers. Get the black-eyed peas pumping. and have a great time. However, they had walked right into Artemisia's cleverly set trap because as soon as the bulk of the Rhodians disembark from their ships, almost all these Rhodians get off to go and, you know, quote-unquote, capture the city. They left the harbour behind, and as soon as they do that, as soon as they're, you know, off, off their ships and out into the city, the Carrion fleet emerged from hiding where it had been, you know, sort of uh, away down the, down, the, uh, down the coast a little bit, hiding away. And it blockaded the entrance to the harbour. So now all the Rhodian, uh, the Rhodian ships, the, the the fleet is just is it's stuck. They can't get out of uh, they can't get out of Halicarnassus here. So the uh, the the soldiers that were on on board the ships there, they then board the docked Rhodian ships, effortlessly capturing them. You know from the vastly outnumbered crews that had been left behind to look after them. So Artemisia has just snagged herself an entirely new fleet without you know hardly any bloodshed. Bloodshed's coming later. Don't worry about that. And as for the Rhodians in the city themselves, once the trap at the harbour had been sprung, these, you know, overconfident invaders who had, who had walked through the city like they bloody owned the place, which it very much turned out that they did not, right, they quickly realised that they were outnumbered and completely surrounded by a, some very, very grumpy carrions and had, of course, no way to escape now that their ships had been captured. However, they didn't have to worry about this problem for very long, you know, luckily for them, because the Carrions then took them to the mar- market square and slaughtered every last one of them. So, you know, in terms of, it probably wasn't the solution they wanted for the, pro- for the problem that they were facing, but ultimately they didn't have to worry too much about this whole being trapped in a foreign hostile city because, yes, they were just mercilessly cut down in the market square. So here comes the best part, however. Even after all of that has happened, even after Artemisia has effortlessly, you know, uh, without really probably even losing any too much of her own, too many of her own soldiers there, defended her own city from an invasion by the Rhodians by welcoming them with open arms before then turning on them like this. Here comes the best part. With the capture of these pristine Rhodian ships, you know, again, none of the ships were damaged or anything while they were being captured by the uh, by the Carrions there. Artemisia now puts uh, she she puts the next step of the of the plan into action here. She uh, she puts it down, flips it, and reverses it here because what she does is she plans an invasion of Rhodes with these new ships. She fills the Rhodian ships with carrion troops. She orders them to sail to Rhodes disguised as Rhodians, which means that when they arrive at the at the island of Rhodes. The ships, they signal victory back to the harbour. The people of Rhodes overjoyed. They go, oh, bloody hell, they've bloody done it. These legends, they've gone to Halicarnassus. They've captured it. They've had a great time. Let's get back and welcome these boys back to our, our city as, you know, as, as, as conquering heroes. And, you know, while the ships were filled with ultimately conquering heroes, it probably wasn't the conquering heroes that the Rhodians were, were hoping for here because uh, 
the Carrions, after having been welcomed into uh, into Rhodes, as you know, they were they were sailing Rhodian ships. There was no reason to think that they weren't. It wasn't the returning victorious Rhodian fleet. The Carrions, they arrive, they dock up, and they emerge. They storm out of the Rhodian ships, recapture the city of Rhodes, and brought, bring it right back under the control of Artemisia. And then, just for good measure, execute all the all the Rhodian leaders. Just you know, just to really stamp the stamp that message of authority home. So. She also, uh, quite apart from this, you know, very, uh, very clear message of dominance here, uh, Artemis, it wasn't quite finished because she also had this enormous victory monument built there in Rhodes to remind those blasted Rhodians just who was in charge here. And it wasn't till years and years and years later when the Rhodians finally regained their independence uh, that this monument was actually, it was cordoned off and no one was allowed to go and visit it or, you know, or even really look at it because it was such a, you know, a shameful blight on the history of the island there. Anyway. Artemisia, safe to say, with this display of utter dominance over the Rhodians, took no bloody prisoners. Uh, you know, bloody Grand Moff Tarkin could have learned a thing or two about uh, about put it, when it comes to putting down a rebellion, I would have said. But it wasn't the only bit of strategic brilliance from Artemisia as well. It wasn't just on a, in a defensive capacity. She also got on the front foot. She also uh, swished the willow about and uh, and got on the you know got on the uh, on the offensive as well. After all this business with Rhodes, Artemis, she was determined to capture a nearby city called Latmos, right? And so she, uh, she did so using another very cunning ruse. Uh, she gathered together a great big stack of her soldiers and she had them lay in ambush just near the city. She told them to wait for the city to empty itself before they went, then went and attacked it. Rather than a full, on, you know, full frontal assault, she's like, wait till the city's nice and empty and then you boys can go in there, march in and take it for yourselves. Now they're sitting there thinking, how the bloody hell is she going to empty the city? What is she going to do? All the, you know, all the people of Latmus there in there, they're all bloody tucked up cosy in their beds. What's she going to do? How's she going to empty the city? Well, Artemisia, she gets a bunch of other women and she heads to a forest grove a short distance from the city. And there, all these women, right, they start to kick up a great big party, huge big ruckus. They're singing, they're dancing, having a great time, you know, great big bloody procession of dancing women. They've got the tunes blasting, musicians bloody honking away, whatever else, having a great time. Now, of course, they raise such an enormous cacophony here that the people in Latmus, they hear this ruckus and they wonder, they, they, what's, what's, what's going on here? What's going on with all this bloody noise of bloody party out in the forest here? And of course, when all the blokes in Latmus... They start, you know, they peek over the walls, have a look at what's going on. They see all these women off in the forest dancing about like that. Oh, you, you obviously know what happens, don't you here? They, they bloody, they go home. They get their nice jeans out the cupboard. They do their hair, pop a bloody breath mint in the gob, and off they go to see what this great big dance party is all about. And as promised to the Carrion troops, Artemisia empties the city. As a result, these blockheaded idiot blokes from Latmus, they stream out and race off to the forest. Bloody lads, 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 right? And the Carrion soldiers, they then march into this undefended city and they capture it, simple as anything, too late for the blokes off in their nice shirts and their fake tan to do anything. Sucked in, mate. You've just lost your city to Artemisia. How does that feel? Anyway, throughout all these military triumphs here, Artemisia, she worked to, uh, you know, she ensured that work continued on her husband's colossal tomb. Let's get, let's get back to talk about this mausoleum here because it was built on a hill. It was built overlooking a city, and it was bloody huge. Artemisia, as I say, she pissed money into this building project. It was 45 metres tall once uh, once finished, which you know might not sound like much these days, but you know the tallest structure in the world at the time, and also all the way through to the 14th century, till 1311, 
was the Great Pyramid at Giza at 146.5 metres. It's not too bloody bad. 45 metres, pretty good. And it was absolutely stunning. It was ex- it was so extravagant. There's, you know, it's got rich decorations and sculptures, these exquisite bas-reliefs. Bas- it's enormously tall. It's, it, it, there's a, it's, it's built on an inner courtyard with uh, columns up and down the side of it as well. And there are statues all around the tops of it there like that. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the statues, uh, again, made by these these uh, these these famous stat- statue what are they called sculptors that's what they're statuers no sculptors they're like that representing you know all sorts of different people there's guards and chariots and all, all you know all the rest of it they're like that this thing is absolutely stunning it's it's a it's a marvel of uh, of engineering and of of of, uh, of artisanal uh, craftsmanship as well uh, but, you know considering the time period especially uh, what what it was when it was finished was just out of this world it was just beyond belief how how stunning how exquisite how enormous this uh, this great big tomb was unfortunately however for our mate Artemisia she never actually got to see it uh, finished because she didn't last all that much longer uh, after the death of poor old Mausolus there one of the most consistent elements in all the stories that were written about Artemisia, all the historians that wrote about it tended to have sort of one very common thread running through uh, her life story that was it just unending and unquenchable grief at the loss of her husband, loss of her brother there. And I don't want to, you know, make her this one-dimensional grieving widow or anything else like that, but it did seem to be a big part of, uh, you know, her, of her life and her identity in the later stages of her life. And, you know, and again, played into the the construction of this enormous, uh, this, this wonder of the world. But it was, as I say, one of the most consistent things about, about the history of this woman. Uh, although some historians handled it a little bit, you know, a little differently from others. One of the most, uh, one of the most ridiculous examples. I mean, this this bloke was just patently, patently ridiculous when he when he recorded the story of uh, of Artemisia. This is a, this is this is this idiot named Giovanni Boccaccio, right? And he wrote a book in 1374 called On Famous Women. And in this book, he described her as a lasting example of chaste widowhood and of the purest and rarest kind of love. Now, he wasn't talking about incest there. That's not the purest and, for- and rarest kind of love, according to this bloke, because he didn't make any reference to the fact at all that she'd been married to a brother. In fact, in this book, he said that nothing was known about her parentage or her, or her marriage or anything else like that. So he's just, he's, he's just talking out his bum and trying to, you know, he just basically wanted to make her seem like a bit of a Mary Sue with iron knickers, I reckon. And, you know, you're not doing anyone any favours there, Giovanni, old son. But broadly speaking... Her undeniable grief at the loss of her husband obviously went on to create one of the most staggering accomplishments of the ancient era with the construction of this tomb. A tomb in which, I might add, Artemisia herself was interred after her death. Her ashes joined her husband's, or I guess I should say what remained of them, if you believe the stories about her drinking them, in this grand new building that had been constructed uh, in, in Halicarnassus. And of course, this building went on to become known as the mausoleum at Halicarnassus, as we know. But did you know, did you perhaps even figure out why it was called a mausoleum? You better secure your socks right now, my friends, because they're about to fly off when I tell you it's not because mausoleum was a word for tomb back then. It's actually the complete opposite. The word mausoleum comes from the name of the bloke that was laid to rest in this one, the first one that was ever called this, mausolus so the mausoleum at halicarnassus was you might say the first mausoleum ever built because it coined the term in the first place a term that we all still use to this very day 
Apparently in later years, the reason it picked up in popularity was because it visiting Romans were so impressed by this mausoleum that upon returning to Rome, they suggested that all of their important tombs also be renamed, be, you know, become known as, as, as Mausolea as well. So a classic example of Rome just nicking culture wholesale from whoever they can, whenever they can. But that is the reason that we today, as modern English speakers, have the word mausoleum. When you hear someone saying the word mausoleum, they are making a reference to this bloke, King Mausolus of Caria from, you know, all those, two thousand what is it, 2,300 years ago, whatever it is. Unbelievable. I mean, I, 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 again, I, I do apologize for the loss of your socks, but I think it's fair to say that they probably would have knocked them off there. Anyway, Artemisia II of Caria, she was laid to rest alongside her husband, uh, and when the mausoleum was finally finished years later, she and Mausolus appeared as the figures in a quadriga, a chariot that's been pulled by four, four horses, on the very top of the building's roof. So they were in pride of place on this wonder of the ancient world. And as for the mausoleum in the years after Artemisia's death, it stood overlooking Halicarnassus as the city was captured by Alexander the Great in 334 BCE. That's when he had that interaction with Ada, who then became his adopted mother, uh, and was still in good repair two centuries later when pirates attacked the city. However, the years, they took their toll on the mausoleum and a series of earthquakes damaged and then finally destroyed the building. And by the end of the 15th century, little more than the base and the foundations remained of the mausoleum at Halicarnassus. But why, why have I paused here in the 15th century to tell you about it here? Well, it's because in 1494, right at the end of the 15th century, the Knights of St. John of Rhodes turned up at the ruins of the mausoleum and used its ruined masonry to fortify one of their castles. They used it to improve and build upon one of their castles, Bodrum Castle. It still stands today. And parts of the mausoleum are still visible within its walls. But that, even then, is not quite the end of the story of the mausoleum at Halicarnassus. Because in the 19th century, an archaeologist named Charles Thomas Newton, he was sent to investigate what remained of the mausoleum. He was sent to recover whatever treasures he could by an organisation that I think it's fair to say are perhaps the greatest art thieves that history has ever seen. The British Museum. Now, by this stage in history, the exact location of the mausoleum had been lost, and Newton didn't exactly know where to look. He had a rough idea, but he didn't know exactly where he was, you know, wanting to excavate there. And he also didn't have the funds to buy, you know, multiple plots of land surrounding the area it was thought to be in order to excavate a large area and search for it. So, rather ingeniously, this is what he did, right? did a bit of the old Edward Plainview. He studied ancient text to find the area that was the most likely to contain the ruins of the mausoleum. He bought that single plot, he excavated it, and then he dug a series of secret tunnels out underneath the surrounding plots. And these tunnels finally revealed the true location of the mausoleum when he came across some of the, uh, you know, the buried ruins there. And after, after discovering where it was, Newton then returned to the surface, went ahead and bought the correct plots of land that contained the ruins and then began a full-scale excavation. And so thanks to the work of Charles Thomas Newton and the British Museum, that is why today you can go to London and see statues of Artemisia and Mausolus on display over two millennia after they died.
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Artemisia and uh, and her role in the construction of the mausoleum at Halicarnassus. I've had a great time chatting about one of the seven wonders of the world, and I was actually thinking that uh, in the coming weeks, I might actually do a little profile on all of the individual seven wonders. I was, I was reading through some of the other ones. You know, I'm, I'm very, very prone to the old Wikipedia rabbit holes. I did, have a, I did have a read of some of the other ones there. So if you're interested in hearing more about the Seven Wonders, please do let me know. I know we tend to sort of jump around all over the place with uh, with Half-Ass History, but if you'd like to know more about the other Seven Wonders, please let me know. We, we, we could knock off the, uh, the other six in the coming weeks if that's something that people are interested in. The best way to get in touch with the show, of course, is via the website, halfasshistory.net. You can click on the top, uh, uh, the links at the top there, and there's a contact form to get in touch with me. And of course, I read every single email that I receive. They're getting to the point where I'm finding it difficult to reply to every single one. I do apologize. If, you, if, if you've emailed me and haven't got a reply and you really do want one, please email me again and I'll do my best. But, uh, you know, my inbox sort of overfloweth a little bit, which is a good problem to have. It's not, I'm not complaining about it by any stretch of the imagination. Um, please uh, subscribe to the show if you haven't already. You can do that, uh, again, links to the website via Sp- Spotify or iTunes. Uh, I've had some complaints at the... Uh, uh, the show isn't showing up on your on your preferred uh, podcast app. Please let me know if that's the case, and I'll, I'll I'll look into it and see if I can get it all fixed up. It should be on Google Podcasts now. I managed to do a bit of a uh, little bit of chicanery behind the scenes to get it up there. And uh, any any feedback generally is is very welcome. Of course, always, always glad to hear from people listening to the show. A uh, special thank you goes to the people supporting me on Patreon. Uh, I've got over a hundred people uh, as supporters of the show, so thank you to so much of uh, you know thank you so much to all of them. In particular, this week we got a special shout out that comes from Graham Keenan, who is a. Uh, very, very shortly to become an executive producer of the show of Half Past History. So th- thank you so much for your continued support, Graham. But Graham's got a message for his friend David Doran, also known as Barry. And, uh, well, I should, I, excuse me, I shouldn't say David Doran. I should say Dr. David Doran, who has just successfully defended his PhD thesis in chemistry, which is quite an achievement. I don't know who he defended it from. I imagine it wouldn't have been from Artemisia II, because, of course, if he had tried to defend it from her, he probably would have lost. But uh, all the same, congratulations to uh, to Dr. Davo there, to Dr. Dr. Barry. Uh, and, and well done, I would say, in particular, for getting a PhD in a, like a real academic area you know you didn't cop out you didn't go for history you went for uh, somewhere that actually requires you to know useful and uh, and and difficult things so well done indeed to uh, to dr david doran or or is it dr david doran i don't know dr barry congratulations to you mate phd uh, thesis in chemistry is no joke and i tell you what i'm sure it was well earned so well done indeed to you and uh, and thank you so much of course to graham keenan and the rest of the patreon supporters uh for their continued support of the show anyway that's enough of that boring nonsense. Oh, not the shout out. That wasn't boring nonsense. That was very important nonsense. But the rest of it was boring nonsense. So thanks so much for sticking through it, of course. And we're going to close the show out, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. We've had an entire episode dedicated to uh, to a mausoleum, to a tomb, to a memorial. And, of course, there are other very, very famous memorials and tombs around the world. And uh, this is where our question this week from Reddit comes from, from Reddit historian Hiram McNoxx. Jeez, that's almost as bad as old bloody Mikhail Gotchel. Anyway, Hiram wants to know, why can't they just open up the tomb of the unknown soldier and see who's in there?